Welcome to The Bee Podcast. The mission of The Bee is to create an inspiring platform for all women of every age group to have meaningful conversations with the intent to genuinely understand each other's journey, to listen to stories similar and different than our own, engage in each other's triumphs and failures, hear and validate one another on the separate unique journeys we have traveled, the loss we have endured, the joy we have encountered, and the reason behind the lessons we have learned. Bees symbolize community, personal growth, and power. And that is what we aim to do here. Create community, foster growth, and empower women. I'm Cami Milliken, and this is the Bee Podcast. Greetings, Bee Podcast community. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Cami Milliken. Tammy Prenicky, an elementary school secretary, youth group leader, and God-fearing woman, has opened her home to multiple children over the years as a foster parent and an adoptive mother. Over time, she and her husband, John, adopted two young boys. With all her heart, she provided the best, most stable, and most loved-filled environment for her children, who were generally coming from very difficult backgrounds and circumstances. As the years progressed, her boys grew up and left the home. With all of the hope and heartache that she had experienced with fostering and adoption, nothing could have prepared her heart for the news that her son had been murdered. This is Tammy's story of love, loss, and hope. Hi, everyone. I have Tammy Prenicky here. Tammy, how are you? I'm good, Tammy. How are you? I'm good. I'm so glad that you're here. And we've been meaning to have this conversation for a long time. So I'm glad that we get a chance to do it. I think the timing is right. Good. Good. Well, Tammy, just start by telling us who you are, your career, your hobbies. Well, I'm Tammy Prinicky, and I am actually married to John Prinicky. And um, I work for Tumma Community School District. I next Thursday, April 1st, I will have worked 30 years for Tumma Schools. Um, oh my yeah, God. and I worked for the AEA, uh, for nine years before that. So I've been in education for a really long time. Um, John and I really are super involved in our family, super involved in our church. We love to play volleyball, um, and don't really have time for a lot of other hobbies. I wouldn't mind sewing now and then I like arts and crafts, but I just don't take the time to do a lot of that. I grew up as a pastor's kid. So we went to church, you know, my whole life, pretty much. Um, I was born and raised in St. Joseph, Missouri for a while. And then we moved around several times in Missouri being a pastor's family. And then we moved to Fort Madison. And then finally, when I was 12, we moved here to Ottumwa. And so we've been here for a while. Could you describe your childhood moving around and doing those things? Uh, I really didn't know any different. Like, you know, that was, we were preacher's kids and that's what we did. We spend two or three years at one church and go to another church. And my childhood, I felt like was pretty uneventful. It was just a normal childhood full of what I thought was joy. And we had a, a good family life. You know, now as an adult, I know that things weren't as peachy keen. We were pretty poor, I guess. I didn't know that. <laughs> Growing up, mom and dad were really good at um, at uh, hiding that, I guess. Well, and when you're loved, right. you don't, I mean, money isn't a thing that you're really necessarily worried right. about. So. Exactly. I did, we did find out when, you know, we were adults that mom and dad would go into huge debt at Christmas time. 
um, for oh. us, which was a horrible thing for them to do. But I think that's probably what made us feel like we had money. <laughs> right. I mean, Christmas is all the same. Right. You know, exactly. Like, well, then did you know as a child that you wanted a family later on? I, I think I did. I remember as a teenager, an early teen, uh, dreaming about my wedding and, you know, about children and, and how many I would have and who I would, you know, be married to. And um, so, yeah, yeah, I, I really wanted to have a family and be married and have what my mom and dad had. Right. Which is an excellent segue to my next question. So how did you meet your husband? When and where? Oh my goodness. It would have been probably in June of 1983. Um, John worked at the AEA. He had just graduated from Indian Hills, uh, the computer programming program. I went there to work as an office education girl, which is not a thing anymore, but it was through school. It was kind of like DECA or some of those clubs. And um, so I went there and Cheryl Marching, I don't know if anybody knows Cheryl Marching, she used to be a school secretary. She was my supervisor at the AEA and she basically was instrumental in putting, getting John and I together because she butted our desks. So they faced each other. (laughs) Now I will tell you, John had a girlfriend that worked at the AEA also, but nobody liked her. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) <laughs> so yeah, Cheryl takes full credit for us uh, being together. And then we got married just about a year later. We had a very short dating period, very short engagement and got married about 11 months, uh, July, not July, June 9th of 1984. Sounds like it has lasted for quite some time. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah. So then the process of talking about a family with your husband Did you know that you wanted to go into foster care and adoption at first? No, no. In fact, I don't even remember talking about a family with him at all. But I do remember that after we got married, I couldn't be on birth control because um, it gave me horrible, horrible migraines. And so I just thought in my head, and I don't remember having this conversation with him, but I just thought in my head, well, we might as well just have a baby then. And it just never happened. And as time went on, uh, you know, I went to the doctor and nothing was wrong. And after a few more years of trying, um, and we didn't try super hard, like it wasn't like our main goal to get pregnant, but we just weren't doing anything to prevent it. Then we got John tested. Everything was fine. They never found anything wrong with either one of us, but we were never able to get pregnant. So then when did the conversation about fostering come into play? We were leading the youth group at our church and we had a young lady who uh, her mom got arrested and she basically had nowhere to go and was going to be put into foster care. And I'm pretty sure it was John's idea. Why can't we help her? Why Why can't she come live with us? And that was the beginning of it for us. Um, We prayed about it and we decided that if God wasn't going to give us our own children, we would help him care for the children that couldn't be cared for on this earth. So, so then in relationship to your marriage, how quickly or soon was that after you were married? It was probably, we were probably in our late twenties. So I would say probably nine years, maybe eight years. Yeah. Okay. Okay. 
so that was the catalyst of your foster care. How many children have you had? Oh my goodness. We've had now that original teenager we never got to have <laughs> because oh. by the time we got done with our classes and everything, she was already placed and, and whatnot. Um, we've had 16 foster children um, in 16 years, but we also have had 16 other children or young adults that have lived with us that were not in the foster care system. We basically had always from the beginning committed our home to whatever God wanted for it. And if that was caring for others, then that's what we, you know, committed to. And so we, yeah, had about 32 people over the, over the years. Backtracking a little bit, you went through the classes and everything. How long did it take in the state of Iowa for you during that time? During that time, I feel like it was the original classes were like three months. And then you had to obviously do continuing ed um, every few months. You had to uh, get that taken care of. But there was just so many classes <laughs> and inspections, yeah. you know, home inspections and background checks and, and all of that. Yeah. Again, the catalyst for starting this foster care, it didn't work out. But then it sounds like with 32 placements that you've had, it did eventually. So. <laughs> Then who was, not who, but how old was your first placement? first placement was four years old and he was a wild man. Um, (laughs) We had him again when he was 10 um, for about six or eight months. And then we, we still have contact with him to this day and he's 30 now. So that's so wonderful. We have contact with a lot of our, our foster kids that we had. Warm, fuzzy feelings. So then parenthood for you, can you describe what it was like for you? It sounds really crazy, unpredictable. Well, that four-year-old is a little misleading because after that, we mostly took juvenile delinquent teenage boys. Okay. For some reason that became our specialty. So it was hard. (laughs) Yeah. We've had children arrested in our home. We've had children try to burn down our home. We've had children run and laugh in our home, you know, just, yeah, just uh, a a very, just like a normal parent, except, you know, they were not our biological children. And we usually only had them for a short term. I feel like the shortest term we had was two months. And then the longest term we had was probably that we didn't adopt was probably, I want to say a year, maybe a little more than a year. Well, you're talking about kids in and out, sometimes the same child, like that four-year-old was in and out of your home more than one time. Can we talk about how that felt for your heart? I feel like, now I'll throw in, we also had uh, two girls over that 16 years, three girls over that 16 years. Also, Um, when you take kids that are older and have so many difficulties, and please don't think this is harsh, sometimes it's easy to say goodbye because it's so hard on your family. Um, Other times it was definitely heart-wrenching. I know for a fact that I could not have done babies and small children 
and had them go back. I could not have survived that more than once. I know at this point in my life. So I, yeah. I feel like the, the juvenile delinquent boys were, were a good fit for us. So parenting with your spouse, mm-hmm. uh, it is all, I, it's the hardest thing I've ever done is parent with my husband. <laughs> what describe parenting with John? The best part about John and I is when one of us is upset or angry or something, the other one is not. Is that, is that weird? I don't know if that happens with all. No, couples. I feel like that's a good balance. That's, yeah. that's, well, maybe it's not, but you struck something good. Tammy. Right. Right. I mean, we are just very much uh, a good team as far as that goes. Um, John is very strict and, um, but he's also very kind and John's a, John's a very wise man and the kids would see that in him. Um, I'm the yeller. I'm the passionate, more dramatic. John's more the, not that he can't yell, don't get me wrong. Um, but he's just more the calm. Let's talk about this, you know, uh, sort of personality. So you have a wonderful balance. It sounds like, and to effective parenting, but then also, I think that's helpful with young boys that are coming into your home who need some some of that hard love, but also some of that grace yeah. as well. Yeah. So then your biggest hurdles to overcome in fostering. Um, probably getting them to understand that them being in foster care was not our fault. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Because they would tend to manifest their anger and fear um, more at us, which was fine and completely understandable. Um, Mm -hmm. Some of the kids had attachment disorders, um, so it would be difficult for them to actually attach to you and and care for you. Um, uh, Most of them came in with different morals and values than we had and um, habits that had already been instilled, you know, uh, like maybe shoplifting or, you know, something like that. And so it was just really um, helping them to understand that we're a team, all of us together. And we tried not to take more than one child at a time if possible. Um, But there were times that we had two or three at a time and they would kind of feed off each other sometimes. And so just Mm -hmm. like when you have normal children. (laughs) Well, well. yeah, Yeah. feeding off of for sure. Yeah. Positive highs or lows feeding. Right. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So then what were some of your biggest wins when just looking back and thinking about uh, all those 32 placements that you had? Oh, there were so many, um, getting to love them, like getting them to show or getting to show them what a family was really supposed to be like, you know, being able to sit down at the dinner table and just have a conversation about their day. Many of them had never experienced that before. Um, Seeing them achieve things that they may not have gotten to do. um, Like three of our boys, I think it was, had got to be a part of JROTC, Mm -hmm. um, where if they had been living on the streets or in the situations where they had been living, they would not have gotten to do that and learn about that. Um, 
I do remember one child who was 16 and he was 135 pounds, all muscle, big boy, who just was funny as all get out and just was with us about four or five months. But every night after the first week, this 135 pound boy would crawl onto my lap and lay his head on my shoulder and we would just rock for five to 10 minutes. And then he would just get up and say, good night, mom, and go to bed. And we had another boy living with us. And after the first few times, he's like, what is that about? And I said, well, apparently he didn't get that when he was younger. And now he's getting that. He never asked me if he could do it. He never, he just did it. And, and I'll tell you the first couple of times, it was pretty awkward, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but, but then it just became part of our, our regular routine. And it was very precious, very precious. Well, and he knew he was loved That's right. by you. Yeah. 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 That is wonderful to think about you know, recollecting all of the, the wins that they've had and you get to, you get to witness that. And absolutely. Yeah. We had another one. We had a girl, she was our second foster child ever. And she was 16 and she had only been with us about a month and she came out on July 4th and said to me, what is happening? What is coming out of my breasts? And of course I had never been pregnant in my life. I didn't understand everything, but it all flashed back. She'd been really crabby. Her pants were all getting too small and now she was lactating. Mm -hmm. So I called OBGYN and she had had a depot shot like six weeks before that. And they're like, oh, that's just a side effect um, to the depot shot. And I'm thinking, no, I have never been through this, but I do not think that's right. So I went and got a pregnancy test and that girl was five months pregnant. Um, Like that test did not have to wait. She had gotten pregnant before the depot shot. Well, her, again, she was 16, her parents and his parents signed and let them get married. And this would have been 22 years ago, maybe they are still together. They have two biological children and two adopted children. And when they started foster parenting, they put us down as a reference. That is, isn't that so beautiful? Full circle. That's wonderful. Exactly. So there are wins like that, you know, that, you know, you made a lifetime difference. Forever. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And we got invited to graduation for that baby and yeah. Oh my goodness. That, oh, again, warm fuzzy. <laughs> so then you, you did end up adopting. So can you talk about your adopted children? Our first one, um, he was 12 when he came to live with us and the adoption was final when he was 14 and he had come from a very abusive home. Um, just one of the things that happened to him was he had a loaded um, nail gun held to his head and told that you either do what I tell you or you're going to become my little soldier. And she did end up getting charges pressed and she had spent some time in prison. Um, That was his uh, stepmother, I believe. Um, and then a few years later, um, Joseph came to live in our home. Joseph was, it was the day 
after his 10th birthday. And so he was 10 and oh, Joseph, <laughs> such a funny little boy. <laughs> I loved him <laughs> so much. And uh, he was adopted within, I want to say a year and a half. Okay. So you've got your two boys that you've adopted and you're raising them to the best of your ability with all the grace and love and that, that anyone can, can give children when they're, you know, yeah. when they're ornery. Yes. How did you prepare your children foster or adopted for leaving the house, being independent? So one of our children uh, is what you call oppositional defiant. And the other one had some mental health issues. And so neither one of them were very receptive to being, to being repaired or to being prepared to leave the home. And they both turned 18 before they graduated. And so like every 18 year old, they thought they knew everything and owned the world. Of course. And so we did what we could. I'll never forget. One of them came home with um, their first car. Mom and dad had nothing to do with it. <laughs> he didn't have the title. He didn't know the name or the phone number of the person he bought the car from. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they just were very independent young men, both of them, very independent. And both of them before graduation left our home. And I remember when the first one was going to graduate, he left the state to go find his biological father. Now we had told him, as soon as you graduate, we will help you. We will do whatever we can to locate him. Well, he couldn't wait until after graduation. And so after he turned 18, he um, decided to leave and go and find his father. It went well for him for a few months, but then it did not go well. Um, He did end up coming back and going through graduation. He completed and graduated. We had a graduation party which John and I had planned because even if he didn't show up, we were going to celebrate. (laughs) And then our second son did the exact same thing, but he just left and was living in a car in someone's driveway and just, yeah, he just really struggled to not do what he wanted to do at that point in his life. So I guess I feel like that is something that might feel good, you know, to finally be 18 and finally have a say in what I get to do. Right. Yes. It makes sense. Because all of these kids lose control of their life. Yeah. You know, when you're no longer with your biological family and you probably don't understand the whole reasoning why, yeah, it feels unfair and it feels wrong. And, and I think that was probably John and I's biggest struggle because we knew the story we knew the reasoning um, and we just tried to love them, you know, as much as we could and help them understand without, I guess, revealing everything to them. And maybe that was our mistake. I don't know, but I, I felt like it was a, our way to protect them, you know, I right. know. hindsight's well, twenty twenty, right? Sure. But <laughs> I, I think it's admirable either way to try and protect them, right. you know? Then how did you support your children after they were grown? They're grown and gone. How did you support them? Um, As much as they would let us, um, we have not ever 
um, supported our children financially. They've never asked for it. They've never, you know, desired it. Um, we, when Joseph had his first child, um, you know, we went after the baby got out of the hospital, we went and, you know, spent time with them and held the baby and loved on her. And just, you know, the, I guess the things that normal, normal parents do, I did a lot of praying for our boys because I knew the path that both of them were on was not the path that I would desire for them. You know, I had a lot of dreams for my kids when I was younger, um, even before I had kids, biological or otherwise. I had dreams that my kids would be su successful, you know, that they would feel loved, that they would just be contributing participants in this world. And um, that wasn't how it was working out, <laughs> you know, and that was, that was disheartening. And so I had to go through a time period where I had to stop and just stop living in my dreams and stop just loving them for who they were, you know, and, and I, I will admit that takes some effort because I was being prideful. I was totally being prideful. And I hate it when people say, <laughs> well, they're not yours. You know, they're not, you, that's not for you to, you know, that's not your fault. Okay, stop. It's not anyone's fault. This is their choice. I don't care if they were biological and I had them since they were zero years old. You know, yeah. they are humans that I contributed to and I had dreams for them. And, yeah. and you know, when those dreams are shattered in my head, they were shattered. It hurts because you want more for them because you know they deserve more. And so yeah, um, supporting them, prayer. I pray so much for them because I really just want them to have a personal relationship with their heavenly father who will never fail them. And that's my true heart's desire for them. Right. Whatever else the world offers, that's what I want for them. Well, and I'm certain, Tammy, that they've seen that in your life, and I'm certain that they've experienced it as well. That would be really difficult to imagine. I mean, anyone, anyone, anyone imagines exactly. what they, what, you know, what your children will be like. And yeah, you never, you never wish ill for your children. Never. So, yeah. Tammy, have you, I mean, we talked a little bit, just kind of touched on briefly you know, they were going down a path that you wouldn't have chosen for them. So in that process, did you ever lose contact with a child or become estranged for any reason? Oh, Cammie. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk. Let's talk. Um, Joseph, our Joseph, like I, uh, well, I just said it, he had mental health issues and Joseph was a runner. Um, and I believe from the time we got him when he was 10, until he graduated from high school, I believe he ran away six or seven times. One time he made it all the way to Chicago. Oh, so this isn't just, I'm running down the street. This is, <laughs> I'm catching the train, no. mom. He did too. He caught the train oh. and went to Chicago one day. One time we didn't see him. I think it was five or six days and he was camping at the river in Eldon. And we just happened to have a friend who lived in Eldon 
and she called us. I think I see Joseph at the river, which wasn't really losing contact per se, but it was something we did experience with Joseph. When he moved out of the house, Joseph tried to convince everyone that I was a drunk and a mean alcoholic. And that's why he didn't want to live in our home. Mm. Now, Joe and I did eventually make amends, you know, after a few months and I was able to confront him with that information (laughs) and, you know, he just wanted people to feel sorry for him. And that's how Joseph lived his whole life was um, he was pretty cute and he was funny and he could get people to feel sorry for him pretty quickly. And so he, uh, yeah, I don't know how I got off on that, but um, no, that's great. Yeah. So um, now our oldest son, he has been to prison a couple times. And so that particular, um, the first time that he went to prison, that was hard. We did not have a lot of contact. And, and I think that was because of us. Like, I don't think we knew how to respond, how to handle that. We weren't prepared for that. I don't think. Mm -hmm. Um, but as the years have gone and it's happened once or twice more, we have, you know, figured it out and we still communicate if he does get incarcerated and, but he's on, he's on the straight and narrow right now. So we're pretty excited about what life has in store for him. now. How did you cope with the, the choices that your child, both, your, both boys made? Not very well um, in the beginning, but then I just realized, we realized that they're adults. They're, these are their choices. We just were along for the ride. We did at one point, one of our boys, we said we were, it was like riding a roller coaster. And finally, John just said one day, we have, we are not on that roller coaster anymore. We don't need, don't need that kind of drama. And not that we turned our back or anything, um, but we just stopped feeding into it, I guess, and just sat back and watched to see how things would pan out. And I think that was more self-preservation than anything. You know. Do you feel like that helped? I do. It helped us for sure. And I also feel like maybe before I was hovering because, you know, I knew what the right answer was and they weren't responding the way I felt like they should be responding. And so I just had to step back. It was very difficult both times that both of our boys, when they moved out, it was very difficult. Well, it's rough anyway, when your child moves out, I imagine, but then to also worry about their safety and health and, you know, that's an added element. What has been the worst experience that you've had as a mother? When Joseph was murdered in 2016. Bar none. Bar none. So in 2016, Joseph was murdered. Do you remember where you were when you received that news? I remember everything. (laughs) about that day. I was at Liberty Elementary School where I am the school secretary. I actually, it was my last day there for the summer and my principal and my assistant principal were in an interview with a teacher in the back conference room and my phone rang and it was a weird phone number and I decided to go ahead and answer it. It was about one o'clock in the afternoon and I answered it and the person identified herself as the coroner for the Los Angeles County 
um, California. And I was like, okay. And she said, are you uh, Tammy Prinicky? And I said, yes. And she said, do you have a son by the name of Joseph? And I said, yes. And she asked me if I could send her some proof of of Joseph, like pictures of tattoos or something like that. And I said, may I ask what this is about? And she said, well, ma'am, I'm sorry to inform you, but your son was found uh, and he's died in a fire in Los Angeles. Now, I need you to understand, we didn't know Joseph was in Los Angeles. He, Joseph was a wanderer and he had gone to Colorado and New Mexico and um, Arkansas, Arizona in his life, but I didn't know that he had ever gone that far. Anyway, I just lost it, obviously, and um, kind of fell to my knees. And all of a sudden, our associate principal, who was a man, came out and helped pick me up. And the lady, you know, said goodbye. And she said, I'll just wait for you to get back to me. And long story short, I just got in my car. I probably shouldn't have, but I just got in my car and I drove out to the AEA um, to John. And we both were like, we, like, I knew it was true, but I couldn't believe that it was true. And so I left John and I went to my sister who worked for an attorney here in town. And when I told her, she's like, are you sure? And I'm like, I'm not sure about anything. And so I gave Alicia the number and she called the Los Angeles County coroner's office. And she confirmed that, yes, they were pretty sure it was Joseph. Um, they could not identify him just because of the condition of his body, but they could see his tattoos. He had no identification on him that I remember. So I'm not sure exactly how they got uh, the information. And so from that point on, we just all came to our house and we just sat around in shock. Yeah. So what thoughts did you have after it was sort of becoming real? Honestly, my first thought, and I said this to the lady that called me, the coroner that called me, I said, I always knew I would get this phone call mm. because jo that was just Joseph. He didn't know a stranger and he didn't understand danger. Um, and so I, I just always knew that somehow Joseph's life was going to end in a, in a horrific way. Tammy, can you describe... I can't. What happened? So Joseph and his girlfriend apparently had decided to go to LA and get a fresh start. And they apparently had left sometime like a few weeks before this incident happened. And then his biological mother and her husband, who was Joseph's stepfather, were going to join them. Well, like I said, Joseph didn't no danger. And he somehow got connected with a homeless community in LA and found out about this abandoned building that many people were living in. Excuse me. And um, so he and his girlfriend stayed there for those weeks, I believe. And then on Sunday, the 12th of July, Joseph's mother and her husband arrived there spent the night in the building 
And the next day, two other tenants got into a fight and one um, got very angry and sought revenge. And he started the fire in this particular room where this other person was, like blocked their door with fire. And the fire department was able to rescue that person and the person that was in the room with them. But nobody knew that Joseph and the other three were upstairs. And so they basically died of uh, heat exposure, smoke inhalation. And I, they believe they were sleeping from what I understand. Um, and that they just died in their sleep. Um, there's a possibility that one of the bodies was outside in a hallway, like they were trying to get out, but that's never really been confirmed for me. And then one other person in the building died. Also. So Tammy, since he was murdered, was there a trial? Yeah, there was a trial. How soon after? Well, Joseph was murdered on June 13th of 2016. Um, the trial started, I think it was the 23rd of October of 18. Okay. So a year and a so half. So a substantial amount of time had passed. Yeah. And yeah. during that time, do you feel like you had some relief or a respite from grieving or, or knowing that someone was behind bars? No. In fact, Johnny Sanchez was arrested the day of the fire. Okay. He was standing outside the building and one of the witnesses identified him and told the police. And so he was arrested that day. So you knew who did it that day. So then it, did it just feel agonizing to wait that long for his trial? Um, in some ways, yes. In other ways, I really just didn't want it to happen because it just, I knew it was just going to stir everything back up. But, you know, we were getting phone calls, the LA police department, we were still getting phone calls from the coroner's office. We were getting phone calls from the DA's office. We actually got phone calls from the Des Moines Register and were interviewed twice for that um, and had two articles in the Des Moines Register during that time. Well, one article before the trial and then one article after the trial. So it was just a constant, it felt like. So then I just wanted it over. <laughs> right. So, so two long years you wait and then his trial comes. Do you attend? I really, really wanted to attend. John really, really did not. Um, and we had, we had a long talk about it one day and he finally just said, it's just going to make things worse. It's just, you're going to see pictures. You're mm. going to hear all the gory details. He said is, I don't think that's what's best for us. And uh, so we didn't go. Yeah. 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 So how long did the trial last itself? Um, I think I want to say like 13 days from opening arguments till the jury uh, was sent out and it took the jury, I think it was just like a day and a half to deliberate. 
and he was charged with five counts of murder with special circumstances. What does that which mean? Means, yeah. So he murdered five people while committing arson. Okay. Interesting. So that's a special circumstance. I don't know if that's just in California or if that's everywhere. I, I don't know enough about the legal system for that. He was also charged with three counts. Well, at first he was charged with one count of attempted murder. And then they added two more counts of attempted murder on. And then he was also charged with arson. When his sentence is given, what, and you hear that news, what was your reaction? Not surprised. They pretty much had him dead to rights, even though the witnesses were not what they, what the defense considered reliable. Number one, because they were homeless people. Number two, two of them had quite long records mm. um, themselves, either trying to defraud the government or, you know, things like that. So they did not consider them strong witnesses. I don't know exactly what happened, but whatever happened, they did uh, convict him. I really wanted to know what was going on in the trial. And we had a, an amazing detective um, named Frank Carrillo. Doesn't that sound like a... It sounds like a detective's name. LA yeah, detective's real, name. Exactly. Real, yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> right. He sent us emails every day of the trial and told us what had happened um, and what was probably going to happen the next day. Um, also, the, the DA, the district attorney, Joy was her name, Joy Roberts, I think. She would call us every now and then. She would send emails and kind of tell us what her plan was, you know, going next. Um, and that was really good. And then we had a victim's advocate. Um, who would contact us. Um, and even though we had all that information, I still needed more. Like I wanted to know what was being said by the witnesses. So I requested a transcript mm. um, and I paid $77 for a hundred and like 40 page transcript to be mailed to me. And um, so I have that. I, I also got the opening arguments, which was not part of the transcript. So I was able after the fact to read through that and I, I didn't see any of the pictures or anything and I'm glad. But you were able to hear, you know, or yeah. read what was said. Read. Does that help? Uh, I thought it would help a lot. I think it helped a little just knowing that they were saying the right things. We were also given the opportunity to write a victim's statement and that was very healing. I know this is awful. A lot of people asked me if I wanted him put to death. And I didn't really need that. There was already enough people that had been murdered. I, I just didn't need that. But for some reason, the Special Circumstances Committee for the State of California took that off the table in the beginning, like before the trial even started. And they just have the right to do that. The DA did not agree with that decision, from my understanding. But she completely um, pushed for life in prison. Each of those murder counts carry a life sentence in prison. Okay. So he, he was uh, given five life sentences yeah. with no chance of parole. 
For your personal victim statement, you were able to write and was read in the courtroom. What did you, what did you include? I, I do know that I just talked about who Joseph was, that he wasn't just a homeless person in LA. He was someone's son, someone's brother, someone's grandson, someone's nephew, and that he was very special to us. And, and I, I believe I told some things about Joseph and about the joy that he brought to us and how we hoped and prayed that would never happen to any other family in the way that it did to ours. So, yeah, I mean, it was, I feel like it was healing. Yeah. It was hard though. In fact, mine was almost late because I just kept putting it off. Mm. Um, and then when I finally wrote it, I kept proofing it and changing it. And yeah, I, I can't say I wasn't mad at Johnny Sanchez, but by this point I had focused so much on trying to heal yeah. that I didn't want that you ripped know, off, that rip it to, off. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, exactly. So is there anything else about his trial or the process of, you know, living through that and the, the waiting of it? I asked John before you got on the call, I just said to him, what do you remember about the trial and whatnot? And he just didn't really remember that much. He's like, I just remember not wanting to go and just wanting it to be over, you know? And so I think we were all kind of on edge when the trial started and just, you know, waiting for an email or a phone call or whatever. And the worst part is, you know, that was, it was finally, oh, here's something that happened. I forgot to tell you this. So the jury came back on November 8th of 2018. He was not sentenced until November of 19, 10 months later. Oh my. 10 months after the original, because one of the jurors uh, or one of the alternate jurors told someone outside the courthouse that she ate lunch with the jury and that she told the jury he was guilty. And so the defense got word of that. And so they called for a mistrial. Oh my. Yeah. And so what they had to do was they had to find all the jurors, pull them back in and have them testify whether or not she did that number one and number two, if she did, how it affected their decision. Well, it ended up, she was lying. None of the jurors. Yeah. None of the jurors remembered eating lunch with her, having any sort of conversation with her. That was probably the most frustrating part because that's what held the sentencing off for so long because, you know, by then it's been three years, three and a half years almost since the original, since the act of, of killing these five human beings. And so it was awful. You know, it's not like some people get a year or two years. No, you know, we had three and a half years almost. I was just going to say one other thing that they had trouble with in the um, trial was all of the witnesses, except one or two, were homeless people. So they had to try to track those people. They had to hire private detectives to track all of those homeless 
people who were witnesses through this whole time. Yeah, because they were imperative to uh, yeah. the case in LA. Looking at the transcript that you ordered, what is it like for you now to read it and, and see and read and you know hear in your mind the trial? Just knowing that all of this was caused because somebody got angry. So then, Tammy, in a previous conversation we had, you had talked about a dream that you've had of your son. Okay, so a little backstory on that. We did not know when we were going to get Joseph's remains. And so we went ahead and did his memorial service with just a picture. And we had not gotten his remains uh, back at that point. I think we waited two weeks after we found out. Well, two days later, his cremains came back, but we chose to hold off and do a private burial of his uh, remains on his birthday, which was July 26th. I know that we taught Joseph about Jesus and about having a relationship with him, but I never knew if it went from his head to his heart. You know, I never knew if he, because he didn't live it you know, there, especially towards the end. But that's not for me to judge. That's for God to judge. But that was on my heart. And so a few days before the memorial or the burial, I was just praying and I'm like, God, I, I just, I just need some peace, something. And so the memorial or the burial was going to be on Monday, Saturday night. I had a dream. And it was a very vivid dream. And Joseph loved to run around in blue jeans and a wife beater t-shirt. That was his attire. And in this dream, Joseph is sitting on a wooden fence and he's straddling it. And he has blue jeans and this bright white shirt on. And he looks me straight in the eye and he says, mom, there really is forgiveness. And that was it. I woke up. And just got this rush of peace over me. And I did not tell anyone about that dream because it was, I've never had a dream that vivid in my life. After the service, after the burial on Monday, John and I had decided we were just going to take off and go to Des Moines and just hang out for the day. And as we were driving, I said, if I tell you something, will you not think I'm crazy? And he's like, no. And so I told him about my dream and it was just quiet in the car. And finally he said, Tammy, I don't think you're crazy. I think that was a gift from God. And it was like, I don't worry about that now because that was what we wanted most for our kids. I think Joseph's okay. I think a gift is right. When you think about, I mean, I'm just thinking about everything you've said as far as giving, you know, living that life and wanting wanting that life for your children and then not knowing if like you said it went from their head to their heart and knowing no I totally I totally believe that that was a gift from God to give you peace and know that it's okay what did the process of grieving look like for you well (laughs) that let me back up just a little bit because that night I believe the coroner had told me that there was a girl with Joseph. And I was like, Joseph had um, two babies with this 
uh, young lady that he was now estranged from at this point. And I thought it was her, the way they were describing it was her. And so I sent her a message and I said, are you with Joseph? And she's like, you know, no, um, why? And I said, well, we've got some bad news. And, and I, they think there's a, or they say there's a girl with Joseph. And I just, the way they're describing it, it's you. And she's like, no, it's probably Tierra Stansberry. And I said, what? I need you to know, I've known Tierra since she was in kindergarten. And when Tierra was in kindergarten, she had a lot of uh, medical issues. And I worked at Horace Mann Elementary School as the school secretary, and that's where she went to kindergarten. So Tierra was in the office a lot, and she had left for a lot of appointments. So her mom, Christy, was in the office all the time. And we just got to be very good friends from all the time that we spent with her waiting on Tierra to, you know, right. leave for appointments or whatever. And I just was in complete shock. And I'm like, Tierra and Joseph aren't seeing each other. And she's like, yeah, they have been for a few months. And so I got off the phone and I told John, I need to call Christy. I have to call her. So I, I'm so dumb. I called Christy, tried to be very nonchalant about it, but Christy's a very smart woman. <laughs> she's like, Tammy, what is happening? What do you know? Well, apparently she had not heard from Tierra in a few days and was worried about her. So the fire happened on a Monday. This phone call from the coroner happened on Tuesday because they did not um, get, um, find the bodies. Um, they found them using a cadaver dog the, the mm. day after the fire was, was out. So it had been a few days since Christy had heard from Tierra. So I just finally told her and she's like, I'll call you right back. I'm going to call my mom. So she called her mom who had had more recent contact with Tierra and she too had not heard from Tierra in a couple of days. So I gave her finally, Christy, I gave her the number to the coroner in LA and she called and was able to confirm that it was Tierra based on the medical scars that she had. So oh, wow. that leads back to your question about grieving because here we have shared experiences with this family, um, the Stansberry DeWeese family, and now we've lost children together. And Christy came over that next day and we just sat here in our living room and just sobbed together for hours. And Christy said to me, Tammy, if I had to go through this, there's no one I would rather go through this with than you. And so that's how we got through it <laughs> as mothers, Christy and I together, sharing as much as we could about our families, about our children. In the process of grieving and knowing that your world wasn't going to be the same, what was something that helped you to get through that? Probably my faith is the only thing I can really, and my husband, obviously, John was very strong and very comforting during all this. Just being able to talk to him, um, talking about Joseph is something that I love to do because he had a lot of very funny idiosyncrasies that we as a family still talk about um, to this day. Alone time, you know, just taking time to be alone and 
journaling. Um, sometimes I will just sit down and just write what I'm feeling, what I experienced that day. I will tell you my biggest fear is that people will forget Joseph. And I don't want that. He may not have been everybody's dream, but he was my dream and a very integral part of our family. And, you know, fighting through those battles for your child when you're, you know, fighting so fiercely because you love them. It's something that, especially when they're, you know, teenagers and then they're young adults and then they go off and they do their own thing to love them through. And despite all of those hardships, this has to be so exhausting, but so worth it. You definitely see reward and you definitely see um, pain through all of it. Absolutely. So you had the love of a friend, which is astounding to me that this happened to two mothers that I know (laughs) that something like that awful would, you know, wreck your whole world. How was it for you to kind of return to what your new normal was? I don't think we have. (laughs) I really don't think so. I just, I don't know. I just feel like every day you just get up and put one foot in front of the other. And I could tell you that every day is easier, but then the next next day may not be, you know, it's just like, I may go for a few days where I don't ponder on Joseph. I always think about him, but there are times that I just sit and think about the things that he had done and what if, you know, what if this, what if that? Uh, And so I just, I just wish that every day would be easier, but then I'm afraid I'll forget him, which I don't think will ever happen, but I don't want anybody else to forget him either. So my family um, is very good at talking about Joseph. And I have a little statue here in my, in my dining room that is an Isabel Bloom little boy with a toad in his hand that Mm. we got um, for Joseph's funeral. Um, Someone had, had sent it for us and it's sitting here. And I mean, I look at it and it's Joseph exactly, you know, it just makes me think of him. Um, And sometimes I'll just walk by and I'll say something to a little Joseph statue, I call it. And, and, uh, you know, that my family, again, is just really good at, we, on his birthday, will have his favorite things, you know, which, by the way, had to be on uh, separated paper plates, because Joseph did not like his food to touch. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've got one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, they're just very good at helping us do those things and keep his memory alive. Meaningful. Yeah. In the process of kind of trying to attempt to heal, did you and your husband grieve differently? Again, I'm the loud one. John's the quiet one. I feel like that's really the only difference. I've only seen John cry twice in my life. And one of them was a day as we were going through this. And it wasn't much, but it told me so much. I just am a crier. He is a talker. Um, but a a wise talker. He's a very good listener. It sounds like, again, to kind of parallel your parenting style, it sounds like the styles in which you grieved were complementary. It sounds like. Absolutely. So then looking back on that event and thinking about the children that you fostered and how fortunate you are 
and have been able to, that you've been able to love all of these children. What have you learned about, about life in general? I have no control. <laughs> you know, right? it's not about me. Um, mm-hmm. I probably learned more about myself than about life. Um, I've learned that I'm stronger than I ever would have thought I was. You know, my father died when he was 57. I was 31. Um, And that was a horrible experience and a very hard experience. We lost him in six weeks to brain cancer. Um, I never thought anything could hurt that bad um, until this happened. Um, And so I know, I knew that I could grieve and that I could get through it. But I just didn't know that I would survive losing a child. Mm-hmm. you know, and you do. Life looks different and it feels different, but you still survive and you, and you go on. Do you feel like any of your grief manifested itself physically for you as far as oh, in your absolutely. body? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I have horrible neck and shoulder. I carry everything right there. And uh, <laughs> yeah. So I'm constantly going to the chiropractor or, you know, doing something to, to try to relieve that, that pain and pressure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did your thoughts ever go to, I mean, yeah. Did your thoughts ever go to a dark place in blaming yourself or thinking maybe I didn't do enough? Not that I can remember. And I think part of that has to do with my faith. Like my, one of my spiritual gifts is faith. (laughs) So I just, it's very easy for me to know that this was part of a bigger plan. It's not, doesn't mean it's easier for me to accept. Sure. Please, please don't mistake that. But again, I understand that I'm not in control. Um, And being a Christian I've always relied on the verse, um, I think it's John 16, three, that says, I've told you this, um, you are going to have trouble in this world, but don't you worry, I've overcome this world. And, and I think I have been able in the last four years to really grasp that. And then James 1 something says, Can count it all joy. Because it all, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but right, be, yes. <laughs> because, count it all joy because it all serves a purpose. Now, do I understand what that purpose is? No, absolutely not. But I know that God would never do anything that would harm me. And I know that's hard to, for people to understand, but it's not hard for me with my faith. Yeah, knowing that it's not about you, rather it's about God's plan. Right. And, and that's so difficult. That's so difficult. And Tammy, the only thing that I'm going to say is about that is I struggle with that loss of control, you know, exactly what you're, I'm, I'm terrified that this, that something like that will happen to one of my children. And so the prayer that I pray with my children at night is that that there, that his will would be done in their life and that he would prepare the hearts of TJ and I for whatever that means. Amen. which is terrifying. It is terrifying. <laughs> terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So 
you are a living testament to that, you know? So what do you do on those days that it does feel overwhelming? Um, I can't stay in bed. I don't know if you know this, but we have our four-year-old grandson living with us right now. Well, yeah. You've okay. seen me at preschool. I have, but I just thought it was grandma duty. So, well, and it is. It is full-time grandma duty. <laughs> full-time grandma duty. <laughs> so right now I have to get out of bed. I have to put one foot in front of the other. I just really felt like, you know, that first year was just a blur. I feel like I was in shock that whole first year. Christy and I would, and our husbands would get together, you know, a couple times to have dinner and just talk about our kids. And, and so I don't remember too much of what I did that first year. Um, but since then, I just, when I'm feeling and I'm missing Joseph, I just talk about him. And if I can't talk about him or if I'm not talking about him, somehow God always provides some way for me to start talking about him. It's just something that he has provided for me. And I just really appreciate it. Or I'll just come talk to the statue. <laughs> yeah. Joseph's statue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's always there. Yeah. I have so enjoyed hearing your heart as a mother who has gone through such <laughs> immense pain you touched on what you learned about yourself. Have you had any just random sweet moments that remind you of Joseph? Can you talk about those? Absolutely. So <laughs> just about two weeks ago, I started using the McDonald's app. And about the third time I used it, I just order when I'm at home. And then when you pull in, you tell them that you're there. And it's always this girl on the South side McDonald's um, who takes my order. Well, this time, this morning, it was a, a male. And so I said, hey, I've ordered 116 whatever. And he's like, oh, Tammy Prinicky. And he said my name correctly. And I'm like, oh, you said my name right. And he's like, yeah, I used to have a friend with that last name. And I said, oh, who is that? And he said, Joseph Prinicky. And I said, here we are talking through the monitor, not even up at the window. And I said, oh, well, that was my son. And he's like, oh, ma'am, I'm so sorry. Because he had said, I used to have a friend that, but he died. That's what he said. I said, yeah, that yeah. was my son, Joseph. And he's like, ma'am, I'm so sorry. I'll see you at the window. So <laughs> I, pulled up, around. <laughs> I pulled up to the window and he just looked at me with this total look of empathy. And I said, thank you so much for being a good friend to Joseph. And he looked at me and he's like, no, no, ma'am. He was a good friend to me. I'm not kidding you. Oh, I teared up and he teared up and it was just the most precious reminder, you know, that people haven't forgotten that it's okay. Right. Yeah. And that was one of those things I was telling you that God does every now and then. <laughs> you want so badly for him to, have positive relationships and a positive life experience and make impacts. And he did. He did. He did. Absolutely. And he, he still is. Yeah, absolutely. And I've never had never seen that boy before. Like he never came to our house. Yeah. I never. So yeah, that was a pretty cool one right there. <laughs> that's really, that's really awesome. Tammy, what are your best memories of Joseph? His laugh. He had a very, cool laugh. He said some really weird things like motorcycle was a moa cycle. Even when mm. he was 18, 20 years old, 
breakfast was breakfast. Just he just was lazy, I think, and just didn't want to say all of those letters. Um, one other time was we took a trip to New York, uh, upper mm-hmm. upstate New York. We had friends that lived there, and he was eleven, I think, and we took my mother with me. And on the way home, we had decided mom had always wanted to go to Martha's Vineyard. And so we decided to drive eight hours out of our way to go to Martha's Vineyard. And we got on the boat to go out, you know, the ferry to go out and the boys were having a blast feeding the seagulls their French fries. Oh my. And (laughs) I'll never forget. I just happened to turn on, you know, the big clunky video recorders that we had back then. Yes. Just as Joseph picked a French fry up off the table out of the basket to eat it. And just as he got it to his mouth, a seagull swooped down and took (laughs) took that French fry. And Joseph is just staring at his hand and he's like, he stole my French fry. And he started crying. And I looked down and his finger was bleeding. So that's why he was crying. But, but we, yeah, we have that on video somewhere that it just is, you know, a reminder of how Joseph was. He was devastated about his French fry. I'm so glad that you agreed to sit down and talk about this because it's, it's so heartbreaking, but it's so healing at the same time to hear and remember because a reminder of purpose and plan. And although things might not work out as exactly as we would intend for them to the bigger plan in, in place and that Joseph hasn't been forgotten and he, he won't, he won't be Tammy. What advice, what advice would you give to someone who's trying to make sense out of something that does not seem to be right or that there seems to be no right answer for it? First of all, questioning is good. I feel like we can't just lay back and not wonder you know what I'm saying about um, why, why would this happen? Why did this have to happen? I, I think those are questions that we as humans have to voice and that we have to get off our, off of our chest. But if we don't get an answer, which a lot of times we don't, don't get stuck in the why. Don't get stuck there because that's a horrible place to be stuck. There may not be an answer. Um, for us, the answer was choices. It was Joseph's choice to go to LA. It was Joseph's choice to be in that homeless, abandoned building. It was Johnny Sanchez's choice to start that fire and to get revenge. So I I do believe 100% that my God could have stopped this. He could have stopped Joseph from going to LA. He could have stopped Johnny from starting this fire but he didn't. Do I know why? No. But I know also that life is like a tapestry. If you've ever seen like a, like an Oriental rug where they're, mm-hmm. they have that beautiful design on the top. Well, I look at that as God. The beautiful part is pointing up to God. He sees the pattern. He sees the beauty that, that is made. What we see are the the stray strings and the knots and the colors that don't make any sense, but to God, it all fits together to make something beautiful. And I believe without grief, we wouldn't understand what happiness was, you know? And so I, I try to look at it that way. I don't have all the answers and I, I don't know why I don't understand, 
but I trust the one who does know. It's taken me a while to get there. Please understand that. That wasn't an overnight thing. Every day, reminding yourself of that. Absolutely. Because I'm certain there are days that it's hard to want to believe that. And, and something else I believe is that God understands. He gave us those emotions. He's a big God. He can handle my doubts and my questions. You know, mm-hmm. he, yeah, mm-hmm. he understands. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He lost a son too, you know, and he did that for me. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, Tammy, that's so good. But by the way, I'm sorry. His son came back to life. Mine didn't. <laughs> I just, I, you know. True. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Details. Details. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk about any sort of advice, encouragement you would give to support people of those who seem to feel lost in their grief? Some, what, what would you have wanted? Absolutely, because part of doing this, I really felt needed to be done was if even one other person gets something out of this, um, not just keeping Joseph's memory alive, but something out of what I've experienced then I am more than happy to do this. My advice is to be patient with yourself. Give yourself time to grieve. Um, Don't let anybody tell you that you should be done grieving or what you should look like grieving because nobody grieves the same as anybody else. And if you need it, if you can't, I don't want to say get past the grief because I don't think you ever do, but if you can't get out of the hole of grief, seek counsel, whether that be with a licensed counselor or a pastor or a friend or someone who's been there, someone who can just listen to you and hear your heart. Don't be afraid to do that. You know, I have a friend who just a few weeks ago lost her 21-year-old son in a car accident. And I told, I sent her a private message and told her that, you know, I was here for her. But the number one thing I told her is keep talking about him. You need that. You know, she sent me a message last week and she said, you're so right. I just need to talk about him. And, and I think that that helps us heal as mothers. I think that helps us to, to get our feelings out there. And, and I I think that makes some people uncomfortable I was going to ask, is it hard no. for you? Because I mean, <laughs> no. at the beginning, was it hard for you no. to talk about no. Joseph? I wanted to talk about him. I think I made people uncomfortable talking about him so much in the beginning. And I think I still do sometimes, you know, people are like, why is she still talking about him? Because he was my son. He is my son, you know? And so I, I just, I just had to do it for me. And whether that made people uncomfortable or not, I'm sorry. I I had to have that. That has to be healing and soothing. It it is for me. I know it probably wouldn't be for everyone, um, but that's my personality. Tammy, is there anything else that you want to share or discuss? Hmm. You know, I, I talked about my older son and I feel like I just need to preface uh, what I'm going to say here. Um, I talked about him being in prison and um, he's had a rough go of it. He really has. Some of it is because of his own choices. Some of it is because of choices that other people have made. Um, But no matter what, everything that he's been through, we are still proud of him as a person. He has accomplished a lot in his life and overcome a lot in his life. And just because his life didn't turn out the way I wanted it to, or we wanted it to, he is still our son and we are still so proud of him 
and love him. Um, we still don't agree with every choice he makes, but you know what? That's okay. He's an adult. He can make his own choices. And um, I just, I just wanted to make sure I said that, you know, that. Well, your love is unconditional and the feeling of, you know, that has to be really liberating to know that you're not in control and to be able to give that up and say, Hey, you know what? I still love you. Wish you were making some different choices, but I'm going to love you regardless. I at heart am a control freak. I just need you to know that I am like, you know, that secretary that wants, I want to get the building running. I want everyone to do what they're supposed to be doing. I want my family to be where they're supposed to be when they're supposed to be. I'm not sure I waste that much energy on it anymore because I've learned that no one is ever any place that they're supposed to be. (laughs) Why can't we all just do what I want us to do? (laughs) I agree. I agree. If we just ran the world, we'd be fine. Dumb humans. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Oh, Oh, Tammy, I have so enjoyed having this conversation with you and listening to your heart as a mother and through your grief and your loss, your unconditional love and your faith in Jesus. So Tammy, thank you so much. Thank you, Tammy. It's been a joy. Guys, thank you for listening. This has been Tammy Pernicke sharing her heart. We'll catch you next time on The Bee Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of The Bee Podcast. Make certain to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. Screenshot this episode and share to your social media to bring awareness to this project. Share and join our community on Facebook. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next time for more inspiring stories told by real women. Wishing you peace and love. I'm Cami Milliken, and this has been The Bee Podcast.